0: All right, so we're back for a part two. Ian, thanks for coming back on. Anytime, man. So we wrapped up the first, you know, we got into this. We weren't sure, is this going to be one or 27 episodes? And I think what became pretty (laughs) clear was it wasn't going to be one. So we started talking about the Cold War in the last episode and really got up to about 1949. And the caveat I'll throw on that is it's one hour covering four or five years well really that's not fair ian was going back 100 years at times or you know 50 60 years (laughs) and we did that in an hour so there's a lot that's not in there um but it's designed as kind of a high level conversation so we stopped in 1949 roughly around the time when the soviet Union acquired nuclear weapons and all of a sudden you've got this relatively level playing field and uh we thought we'd take it from there and as a little lead-in for today um we're thinking that this episode is going to cover roughly 1950 to the early 1960s. So I'll say that. Um, but with that, Ian, you want to recap or touch on anything last week, kind of a lead in before, uh, before we get into it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the way I kind of look at this is I want to, I want to paint a picture for people, the context in the, the world for us foreign relations and for, um, of course, most of this focus has been Europe, but um, and European foreign relations leading up to Korea. So we all know Korea starts in June of 1950. US really doesn't get involved or doesn't really get to fight, get to the fight until August, but I'll get into that later. But let's set the stage in 1949. This is a huge year in terms of the Cold War. It's not one that often sticks out in US memory because a lot of what's going on with the US is we're reacting to big decisions abroad. But 49 abroad in the context of the Cold War is, is massive. Just to name a few things that are happening in this year that you wouldn't otherwise think about, but have massive repercussions for the rest of the Cold War and into today. You have, you have the first Soviet nuclear weapons test, uh, successful nuclear weapons test in, in August of 1949. You have the establishments of both West Germany first as a, as a nation, and then later East Germany. They do not have militaries yet. This is a, a key thing that will come up later on and be uh, a back and forth um, in the night through the 1950s. They do not have militaries yet, but they are now established nations. We have gone from from sectors in less than five years to actual countries: um, the Bundesrepublik Deutschland, the BRD, which is West Germany, or the German Federal Republic. Then you have the Deutsche Demokratische Republik, which is the East German. Uh, East Germany or the German Democratic Republic. So these are both established in 1949. This will play out a ton in the late 50s and early 60s because the U.S. is not going to acknowledge diplomatically uh, East Germany as a state, as an, as an independent state. So that's going to be a huge factor in our decision-making. Um, in addition to that, in 1949, it's hard, to, uh, it's hard to forget, but on top of all that other stuff, the Berlin blockade ends in 49. Stalin is still alive in 1949. You also have uh, NATO established at this same time. And that is going to be a big deal going down the road. Um, but you, you've got all these factors happening in 1949 uh, that make this a huge year. But despite all this, you'll notice that it's mostly Euro- Eurocentric. It's mostly focused on the European theater. So if we're going to shift over and look at Korea now,
0: a setup for or- Korea. Before we jump to Asia, I have a question about the two countries there. Yeah, Who wanted that? Was that like when the two countries were formed, was that a a positive for the U.S.? Was it a positive for which side of the Cold War did that benefit or did it?
1: It benefited both sides for various reasons. Um, Both of them knew that they would benefit from each other's side being an ally. Uh, In particular with the Allies, uh, the focus was they wanted to have Western Germany as an established state so that they could create a trading partner out of that, an economic uh, partner, because they knew the industrial capacity that Germany had or was capable of having, especially Western Germany with the Ruhr and Alsace and the coal producing regions and things like that. These are factors that go all the way back to World War I or right. even the Franco-Prussian war. So those coal deposits, those abilities and natural resources that come with a West Germany is very important. Now, on the other side, you have the establishment of Eastern. This is also a big deal for Russia because it gives them, A, a further buffer zone between them and the Western powers and the Allies in Europe. Um, but it also provides more legal framework for them to be able to kind of get less hands-on. Believe it or not, the Russians, while they always have a thumb on the scale in East Germany, there comes a time later on, especially by the early 60s, and you'll see that with the Berlin Wall going on later. But there comes a time where the East German communists are so fervently communist and so eager to prove themselves in the Soviet Union as a as a reliable ally that the Russians actually pull away from them a little bit. They actually back off on having advisors at every level of their military. Uh-huh. And it's it's pretty astounding. And there is even debate over whether or not it was more an East German or or Khrushchev and the Soviet Union uh, decision on whether or not the wall goes. up. That's a, a whole other debate. That, again, I'll get to later. But. The thing to remember here is that both sides stand to benefit substantially. And another thing here that's playing into the nuclear tests is that early on, what limited the Soviet Union in creating a nuclear weapon was um, access to uranium um, and being able. And it wasn't necessarily the ability to enrich it. It was just the ability to get it in portions that they could use and burn up so that they could create enriched uranium. And funnily enough, a big portion of this actually comes out of Eastern Germany. Because we've been so Eurocentric and the Cold War is going to continue to be Eurocentric, the epicenter of the Cold War is, of course, Germany, and more specifically, Western Berlin and Eastern Berlin within Eastern Germany. Um, again, recap of the first episode. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail, but Berlin is inside, entirely inside the Soviet sector of Germany. That is a factor and access to the city through the Eastern sector is going to be a big factor throughout this thing. But 1949, we have all this other stuff going on. Clear on the other side of the world, we still have troops on occupation duty in Japan. And remember, again, we leave Japan on occupation, or at least in occupation, of the traditional sense, in the post World War II sense. We leave Japan in 1950 uh, after a new constitution is ratified in Japan, based very much on the U.S. Constitution. Um, And of course, you are going to have U.S. bases throughout the Japanese islands, but it's not an occupation anymore after 1950. But in 49, we still have troops there, and we're getting ready to pull out soon, and we're hoping to because we want to shift our focus away from Asia and what we would call PACOM today. We have other things going on through allies in Malaya and uh, Taiwan with the remainder of what was um, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's army um, in the Chinese civil war. But by 1949, the writing is on the wall and another thing that happens in 1949 that ties us into Asia is the fall of China. The communist forces in China um, finish for the most part on the land, They rout what's left of the nationalist Chinese Kuomintang army um, and the Chinese are victorious. Now this has other effects. There are more conservative voices in the U S government and military who are saying, Oh my God, we have to do everything. We can to combat this. China just fell. What happens next? Truman early on, believe it or not, is actually getting a lot of flack for being soft on communism. His hope, despite our, the idea that we have this um association connected with the truman doctrine the idea of containment of these countries containment of another country is different than say detente detente is what we see more specifically in the 70s with nixon which is reaching out a hand trying to be partners or at least um have a diplomatic conversation with these countries that before we would refuse to even engage with um containment is keeping them in their
0: place but not trying to actively undermine their regime, change their
1: government, things like that.
0: They Is that happen. kind of the idea that if it's working, it's better than something? I mean, you could look at Iraq in the last 20 years where it might not have been a system of government or a leader that we liked, but it's functioning. It's a functional member on the world stage. Was it that kind of idea? It's, it's that and also the hope that um, we
1: acknowledge, especially let's say with the relationship between China and the Soviet Union, A lot of people in the Truman administration and that are studying foreign policy this time also acknowledge that the Chinese communists are very much different from the Soviet communists, or at least at this point they are now. And they are going to continue to diverge until the official, what we call the Sino-Soviet split, which kind of happened starting in the late 50s, really in you know, uh, at its core, it's going to start in the late 50s and end in the mid 60s. Um, And this is a further diplomatic and ideological split between communist China and the USSR. Despite the fact that the USSR is going to continue to have pretty good relations with them through this time, um, that split is going to grow really, really heavy. And eventually, at a certain point, the U.S. sees that we are the one beacon, shall you say, of democracy for the Western powers and third world nations that we want to bring into our camp. If we allow the Chinese and Soviets to split amongst, to fight amongst themselves and split, they're going to further split alliances within the communist world. Ah, And while they may have more communist countries, they're going to go to a Chinese camp or a Russian camp or a a Soviet camp, excuse me. So a good example of this is actually uh, communist Albania. Early on, communist Albania, though it's firmly in Eastern Europe, um, kind of distanced itself from Stalin and the Soviet Union especially into the 50s. And in the 60s, it actually leaves the Warsaw Pact entirely. And it then finds an economic partner and kind of leader in communist China. And so you see an influence in their government, the way that they conduct themselves, um, which is far more Chinese inspired than it is Soviet inspired. So you see that in
0: Europe, but mostly in Asia, just by you know
1: by virtue of you know, who's around China and who's around Soviet Russia.
0: I didn't know um, that an Eastern European country could leave the Warsaw Pact. I mean, I know they could. I just didn't know that was like realistically in the cards at all during this time. That's crazy. They're, I know. Really, they're really the only one that gets away with it. Um, when you always
1: see and look up, you know, info about the Warsaw Pact, it will say Albania until 1968 and, you know, everybody else. But, um, but so because of this, you have this split. This plays heavily into the beginnings of Korea. So for the U.S. and Korea, we're actually getting ready to pull out of that region. Our whole goal was to occupy, and we had agreements with the Soviets that, they would be occupying the, the northern half, would be occupying the south until there was a uh, unified or somewhat democratically elected government agreed upon. Unfortunately, those votes kind of went out of turn of what the Soviets and Americans wanted. Uh, the north firmly voted for a communist government, the south firmly voted for a loosely democratic government. I don't want to go into too much detail, but just know that Syngman Rhee, who is going to be the leader of South Korea, is going to stay the leader for a very long time after this war, and in many ways it's kind of seen as a dictator in of himself. Um, but it was seen as a better alternative to the communists. And at times, he was going to really test American patience, because by the time this vote happened, the Americans said, all right, it's 49, we have other things we need to focus on. Underlying all of this on the American side is Truman and his wanting to basically have a Cold War on the cheap. The only way I can describe this is that basically in 1949, prior to nuclear, to uh, the nuclear detonation from Russia, and this gets into questions you had from the earlier um, podcast, but prior to this, the way we used our having our nukes and no one else having them was the fact that we continued to build them. We had uh, about 250, a little more than that by 1950. Um, but by 1949, when the Soviets didn't get their first, we had over 100. Um, and the way we used that, diplomatically and politically, was that we basically used it as a tool to allow us to not have to fund a massive active standing army for a conflict at any given time. But we had nukes. Whereas we knew at any given time, especially in the post-war period, we drastically draw down our military, our military after World War II. And funding is kept at nowhere near what funding of the military is today. Today, our military funding is anywhere between 20-23% I think at last check. Um, in 1949, funding of the military is about 5-6% of GDP Really? Wow. It's very small. And this was a big part of Truman's uh, uh, doctrine and part of his, his uh, domestic front stuff was that he's going, to, he's going to maintain an army, but it's going to be very small and we're going to use nukes in that place. So, for reference, by just prior to the Korean War, we have seven active divisions seven active divisions in the U.S. Army. And of those, one is really 100% ready to go. And that's the 101st, believe it or not. So there we always go. The hundred, always the freaking 101st. Love it. But, but there's, there's six other divisions out there that are at 60, 70% ready to go. Now we're leaning heavily in 47. We start to reactivate a whole bunch of uh, formerly active divisions from World War II, um, just in case. But we really only have seven. And of that, there's not a ton to work with. And in Korea, we've got nothing. We've got a couple hundred guys at most down in the South kind of advising, um, and they're just kind of hanging out. And the thing is, is we really hadn't prepared the South for an invasion for several reasons. One, we didn't think it was possible because we really didn't take the threat of North Korea seriously. And two, we wanted to slowly get out of Korea, get out of Asia, Japan included, and shift our focus to Europe. And Believe it or not, though, we couldn't see the writing on the wall, despite the fact that in 48 and 49, even as soon as the war ended, there was constantly there was a war continuing a low boiling war under the surface of guerrilla war of communist insurgency in the south. Very similar to what we see later on in Vietnam. But by 1950, we there's well over 7000 police and uh, political personnel in the south that have been killed in this low level of insurgency. And believe it or not, three USKIA between 1948 and 49. But this, it's ignored
0: because we're trying to get out and trying to shift our focus and get away from that there. And is this still, Ian, is this still um, viewed as like the hangover from the Second World War, like a little bit? We talked about the polar bear expedition last time.
1: Mm-hmm. Is
0: it kind of the same sense of people at home saying like, what are we still doing with troops overseas? The war ended four years ago, five years ago. Is it that kind of sentiment? It's, it's very much in that ilk. It's also just plain and simple wanting to save
1: money and draw ourselves back and not having the army to to back it up. We don't we reduce our military overnight and we discharge a military of 13 million active duty down to less than a million in less than two years and we're even lower than that by 1949. So we were thoroughly not prepared, but we thought because we had the nukes, we were good. Then the Soviets state made theirs. But this doesn't really change the environment to be honest with you, even with the the nuclear weapons, what really changes our doctrine and the way we're gonna face Korea is prior to this, Truman had been weaker on communism. He was trying to act diplomatically whenever he could and maintain this army on the cheap thing with his five, 6% GDP. Then you get NSC 68. NSC 68 is a document for the National Security Council that's drawn up after um, a request from President Truman in January 1950. Basically he says, I want to know if what we're doing right now in our foreign policy is effective, and I want to know if it's going to work in the future and where we need to go from here. After about three months um, of back and forth, there's uh, the National Security Council and a board of a bunch of, a bunch of other guys, um, basically come out with this document, NSC 68. And NSC 68 is so important to understanding the Cold War. It's essentially going to dictate the tone of the Cold War going forward to the end. Now it's going to ebb and flow. The the way in which we we interpret this document, but the language is very clear. And despite this, even Truman is kind of kind of um, wary of it. And a lot of people that were even part of the board are of wary. Basically, it spells out in no uncertain terms that communism is an existential threat to the United States and our existence. Now that they have nuclear weapons and we have nuclear weapons, it kind of lays out not mutually assured destruction yet because we know they don't have the levels of nuclear weapons that we do, but they vastly overestimate what the Soviets are capable of and and how they work. We look at it from the National Security Council looks at the Soviet Union, despite having several experts there to understand their economy. They look at the Soviet Union like the U.S. where we're prepared at any given time to ramp up production, ramp up industrial output, and fight a war. Whereas communism and the pre-planned economy of of the socialist government of the Soviet Union means that at any given time, you're already maxing out output. You can't uh, go any higher than where you're at. The US and our capitalist system is built on this idea that we're not going to make everything. We're going to stockpile stuff, but we're not going to make everything we need to until we absolutely need to. But what NSC 68 does is it establishes this tone of if we don't beat them back or if we don't do a good job of containing them, any little thing could lead to them getting an advantage over us that we could not and no coalition could stop. And so because of this language, it really ramps into this idea of really kicking in the military industrial complex and this idea that till the end of the Cold War, we're going to constantly be producing, making things, being ready, building a large and maintaining a large first um, non-voluntary and then later voluntary army through the Cold War to be able to moment's notice fight the Soviets which we hadn't really been doing up to this point. We had really dialed things back up to 49 and into 50 because we knew we had the nukes. But now some people who were stretching some of the truths were basically saying that things were far more dire than they truly were. Even though there were several um, experts, one part of the panel and several others that were outside that were advisors to Truman, but weren't part of this council, that were basically saying the Soviet Union is maxed out. They're in shambles, even if they wanted to, their economy couldn't. Be anything that we're doing. And the other thing was is at this time, a lot of experts were also saying the Soviets, we had doubled them on everything. Everything but men in boots on the ground in our military. We had doubled their industrial output, doubled their steel, double their crops and, and food output. We were doing far more and were capable of doing even more than what the Soviets were ever capable of doing. And people do this. But people painted a dire picture, some more conservative and extreme. Wings within um, Republican parties at that time in Congress were on a on essentially a second red scare where they were trying to do everything in their best attempt to try and make sure they got to people and
0: made them understand this idea of
1: this existential threat
0: and because now, that, i can see I can see a positive side of that too though, right I mean if you were to say this potential adversary of ours is not as bad as you think their j v team I mean then you lose you lose funding, you lose resources, you lose maybe R&D money. Um, but if you can hype up that threat to a maybe responsible level is the way to say it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to mince words here, but like, I think there's some value in not underestimating, right? But you're I mean, saying it went above and beyond kind of intentionally. It, it kind of did. And I
1: think, and and you see that almost immediately in these budgets from that five to six GDP. In three years, we see the US GDP of the military funding go from five to six to almost 14 or 15%. And that really sets us on the path of kind of how we even how we work today. Um, But this you you see Truman reacting to this. And also, even though Truman isn't totally on board with this NSC 68, he goes with it. Because he's being accused by a lot of people on, on the right of being soft on communism. And he sees his agreeing to this as being his, his look, I'm not soft on communism. We're gonna ramp up all this this spending, all this funding. And lo and behold, once his funding kind of gets sorted out, that's really gonna release a ton of funds that are gonna allow us to fight in Korea. And now on the Soviet side of all this, prior to Korea, you've got Stalin. Stalin is kind of lukewarm on the idea of an open war against the South. He's definitely afraid of sparking something off with the Americans. Same thing with us. We are, we are both mutually very afraid of kicking off something with the Soviet Union. And early on, basically, Kim Il-sung, the founder, the later founder of uh, the North Korean state in 1948, is going to go to Stalin and say, hey, we want to kick this thing off and take back the South. And Stalin's kind of hemmed and hawed. Did, did you say that was in 48? Uh, it was, it might have been just after in 49. But either way, well ahead, not yes, not like yes. the weeks before. Okay, cool. Before, yes. And he's he's going to go to Stalin and say, "Hey, we want to kick this thing off." And Stalin's going to go, ah, "You know, I yeah, we we really don't want to be involved personally because he asked for assistance from the Soviet Union, and while they're going to support them diplomatically, and later on with some direct you know pilots and technical assistance, he does not want to be on the ground like the Chinese are later on. And essentially, Stalin says. If you can do it quickly, do it, but we're not going to give you troops on the ground. Go talk to China about that. They might help you out because China and Korea also had, or North Korea and China had kind of a relationship because there had been volunteer brigades of North Koreans who had fought in the Chinese revolution. Many of them had come back home since 48, 49, and they had a, a standing relationship there. And Mao was now victorious and was like, Yeah, yeah, we'll help you out because it was part of them wanting to further the idea of communism in Asia, but also kind of wanted to kind of kind of wanting to use the opportunity to stick it to the Soviets and use it as an excuse to say, look what we're going to do. We have the power to do this and help North Korea and you guys pass the buck on it. So it's so Kim goes out and asks for this and they get support. And basically, China says we'll also help you militarily, but they're not big on troops just yet. So that's in this environment. The U S so, no, so nobody says no. It's not like, um... it's not a hard no from anybody in the Soviet camp. And on our part, we have not prepared the South for a war. By 1950, the North clearly outnumbers and out has, has more weaponry and everything than the South does. The South has about 90,000 troops total of that. 30,000 are combat support. The 60,000 are actual combat troops. They have no tanks a handful of aircraft and that's about it and the north however has Soviet tanks that have been left by the Soviet occupational forces and given in material aid same thing with Chinese weapons and equipment and since 1948 the north has been preparing to be able to actually domestically produce a lot of these things themselves so the China, the north is very much on a war path but we didn't think they were going to be a real threat and we were also just not focused on them at the time and it just didn't call for it, the environment But in 1950, you get this movement. The back and forth was also already, there was a heightened awareness in Korea that something might pop off. But we only had a couple hundred guys on the peninsula and a couple thousand in Japan. And so we were just not prepared. And so June of 1950 rolls around, the North invades and the South to to their, you know, the, the South had been kind of poking at the North periodically, but they just had nothing they could do about it. And also, the U.S. was not eager to help out Rhee or give him a bunch of supplies because we were afraid that Syngman Rhee, the leader of South Korea, if we gave him the ability to be near peer with the North, he would take advantage of that and start a war. That's the kind of guy that Syngman Rhee was at this point. We were really worried about it. He was another one of those guys kind of like early on with um, uh, South Vietnam's uh, leaders. We were very wary of them, but they were all we had. And we, we they were better than communists, but they were not great guys, and they were not good leaders, and we recognized that, and they were not particularly popular. Um, but we didn't want to give him the ability to start a war, and then us have to go, oh, crap, here we go, kind of thing. But 1950 rolls around, the invasion begins, and Stalin told him, do it quick or don't do it at all. And the North damn near does it; they go very very quickly, and in. A matter of weeks, they get all the way down to the Busan perimeter. The I didn't the
0: in the South I, didn't, I was gonna say I didn't realize how poorly equipped the South Korean army was. Um, Very. You giving those troop numbers and the equipment numbers, um, it kind of seems like a miracle that they held on at all. Is that fair? It, well, and that's the thing is they
1: really didn't. The only thing that saves them. They, they get pushed all the way back to that, that little foothold in Pusan very quickly. They have no anti-tank ability whatsoever. And the Soviets have tanks. What are they going to do? They're going to fall back and get their butts kicked every single time. And that's essentially what happens. The, the ROC army just gets pummeled back and back and back to this perimeter of rivers around Kusan. And we do have a small contingent of Americans. But by the time they get kicked back there, we're going to send what we have left in Japan to South Korea to help out the ROC. And that's where you get Task Force Smith and all these guys early on. Task Force Smith are some of the earliest guys that get there. And they have some anti-tank ability, but not much. And they're also a very small force. Um, but they wipe through them. But we've started to get troops from the Philippines, get troops from the U.S., raised up, trained, get them to Japan, then jump up from Japan into South Korea. And they hold on just long enough. They can get them. And the big thing that saves us and saves the the, the Rock and South Korea as a whole is American air power. The North Koreans have an air force, far more of an air force than the South Koreans do. But it's pretty outdated, and they're not very well trained. Um, and early on, they're just going to be rallied by, uh, by American planes, fighter planes, bombers, jets. We overwhelm them. And what's going to save us time and again through Korea is going to be American air um, it It's really going to save us and allow, despite the back and forth on the ground, We never lose, after those early days, we never lose air superiority. We might get challenged in the air once in a while by a a small squadron of fighters or something like that, do a couple dogfights, things like that. And that's where you're going to get some of your Soviet technical advisors who go in as pilots and are going to pilot these aircraft because North Koreans can't be trained quick enough. The Chinese are also going to be there and training themselves. And the Chinese do have some commendable pilots um it's not just the soviets but it's by and large the soviets they're going to do dogfights the sexy stuff up in the air but regardless they're never going to be able to match the bombs the the ability that we have to just carpet an area and cover everything and that's why the north operates almost solely throughout the war at night same thing with the chinese we operate in the day we own the day night not so much the chinese and later on the or the volunteer chinese the um uh, People's Volunteer Army um, that later comes in in 1951 uh, or late 1950, when we start to push back, um, they and the North Koreans are going to operate almost solely at night. And you get a lot of accounts of that when that's when guys get the most hyped. That's when at the individual soldier level, these guys in their box levels are just scared. It's terrified Because they know that they own the night, that, you know, NVGs are not a thing yet. We don't have night vision on a mass scale. We don't have the ability. This is kind of the last real conflict where nighttime is going to be completely you know kind of what we think of nighttime as is you're not going to have NVGs. you're not going to have any way to really fight other than a being in the dark and maybe shooting up some star clusters or something like that um and they're they're terrified of that and nine times of ten they're also vastly outnumbered um by chinese mostly the north koreans really wither after our initial pushback after that um but just know that it's 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 a lot of night fighting is when the Chinese and Koreans make their make their moves, and that's going to be a big part in all these stories you hear in personal accounts of fighting in Korea, especially from U.S. troops. Um, but the thing that not to forget in this whole thing is that Korea is also not just the first active front in the Cold War. It's the first time that the U.N. is tested. The U.N. forms an army after a U.N. resolution is passed that the invasion of South Korea is illegal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there's going to be several nations there that a lot of U.S. personnel, I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast is familiar, but you're going to have lots of armies that you would never think of are going to be formed who are eager early on to provide some sort of faction to the fight in Korea to prove that they are capable and they are an equal part of the U.N. And that's going to give you the Turks early on, the the Turkish military is going to be there, the Ethiopians, uh, Koreans, of course. You're going to have um, U.S., Canada, uh, Britain. You're also going to have... um, some other smaller nations there in much, much smaller contingents. Um, but there are, it is, it is a true coalition um, in the sense of the word, but, you know, at any given time, the U.S. is the vast majority of those troops, but they can claim it's a coalition. It's not just us, but it's also mostly us. And that's a
0: big factor. I have a question about that, Ian. When, so when you look at the, you know, if you pull up the Wikipedia page of, of the Korean War, you see... China and North Korea with, you know, maybe a little, little Soviet Union in there versus this long list of the United Nations. And when you look at that, you say, holy cow, how did Mm -hmm. these two countries hold off, you know, half the world exaggeration, but, but quite a few countries, given the number of forces, I don't mean to jump too far ahead here. So maybe hold off on this if it's easier to get later, but, um, why weren't there more United Nations troops? I mean, if we could have had 5 million, 10 million, whatever in Korea, it's probably a different story when China comes over in force. If we were looking at this United Nations force, what, I mean, it's great that some country sent a dozen troops or you know a, a hospital platoon, but if we were really looking at the international community, why wasn't that a double down, outnumber the Chinese? Was that even it in regards... Is- there were many factors involved in that. One is the sheer size and preparedness of the
1: Chinese army at this time. They're called, they call themselves the volunteer army, but they are truly just fresh off the heels of a revolution and fighting in some cases 10, 15 years. First the nationalist Chinese, then Japanese, then the nationalist Chinese again. And these guys are veterans. The Chinese are not to be are not to be taken lightly. The Chinese are hardened, trained veterans at this point. And some of the North Koreans are. I think that's a big part of it. The Chinese, despite all these stories we have of human wave tactics and the sheer and utter destruction of human life on the scale that we see with the communist forces in Korea, the Chinese are not to be underestimated. They they are well-trained and prepared for this war. Also, it's their their country and area. They know how to navigate it. So do the Koreans. The, The South Koreans, of course, do, but they are also vastly outnumbered in this scenario. We do not know how to negotiate this. So much of the fighting happens early on in the mountainous areas around the border and especially to the north of the border. It's so mountainous and such rugged hard fighting. Some armies like the Turks and Ethiopians might be prepared for these kind of things because their own countries have a lot of mountainous areas that they might be trained in. But what it comes down to is support and just an appetite for being part of it. There were all sorts of people who diplomatically supported um, the UN coalition but they weren't going to give troops. You also got other large countries here Germany, at the, at the time of the vote isn't military, but for them to even have a military, they don't even have an army yet. Germany isn't going to be an ally. Either. So they're not even allowed by the terms of this to have an army. And the Soviets are already on edge about them having anybody armed, even though their own East German sector is already armed with police. Same thing with West Germany, they do the exact same thing. Um, but they don't have anything to contribute. Scandinavian countries aren't gonna go in there and help you out for the most part. And a lot of these countries that have been ravaged by war for many years, and in some cases, we're we're still in a war. You had Greece that was still in the throes of a civil war at this time. Uh, It's surprising that Turkey was stable enough to go and do this themselves. France is in the throes of not only political upheaval at home, but a growing insurgency in Indochina later Vietnam. So that's going to be a factor there. So you're not going to get much French backing there because they're so bogged down in Southeast Asia already. So... It really comes down to support and just people having an appetite for war. And while the American public wasn't totally against Korea, they were never totally like, they're like, if this can go quick. Same kind of thing as, as Stalin's kind of thing. And they're like, this can go quick. Sure. But most Americans couldn't tell you where the hell Korea was on there. They They knew that there were communists there and we were fighting them and we pl- we played the coalition card, but a lot of those Korean War veterans, there was just not a ton of support for them. It wasn't Vietnam level, but when they were coming home in you know, wounded in 51, 52, 53. They weren't, they weren't getting much respect or much praise. You know, it wasn't, people were sick of war. They were tired of it. It had only been five years, almost, yeah, just a little under five years at this point when the invasion starts in June 1950. There just wasn't a ton of appetite for it. But the UN wanted to, especially the fact that the UN was so heavily invested in by the United States and some of the, the allies of World War II, they wanted to make sure the UN played a role because they said, all right, here's our chance. We would need to make sure this UN thing can work. Um, and that's where,
0: that's why you don't have this, this kind
1: of wholehearted,
0: you know, support of it. It sounds a little bit like if we look, you know, to pull, to try to compare everything to something modern. If we look at the invasion of Iraq in 2003, it was a multinational force. There were a lot of countries Mm -hmm. that had something to do, especially in the couple of years after that. Um, some of them sent a fighter squadron, right? Or, or an artillery battery or something, They'd be small contingents where it's, it's saying, you know, we want to be a part of the team or we want to be seen as a team player, but this isn't an existential threat to our country. So we're not going to mobilize the entire, you know, French countryside to support this war in Iraq kind of thing. It kind of sounds like that's the case.
1: And that's kind of how
0: it, in some hallways of the U.S. government, they viewed it as an existential
1: crisis, this domino theory, Truman doctrine of if one country falls, other ones are going to fall. But that that NSC-68 document I told you about, that wasn't public. People didn't know this is how we were approaching it. We gotcha. were going to see more and more of these attitudes embodied and built by NSC-68 in the American public sphere later on, especially with the trials of the Red Scare in the early 50s and McCarthyism and all that. But the government was not outright saying this is an existential crisis they were saying, we need to save this country from communism. And a lot of people supported that to an extent. But in a lot of respects, it was, at, at one point, it was kind of like, I don't want to directly compare to Afghanistan or Iraq, but it's just low-level enough that people know what's going on, and the people there hate it. The people that are in the middle of it know what's going on. It's terrible and terrifying. But the American public is just kind of like, I, I guess it's a conflict, um, sure, uh, kind of thing. It's It's not... It, it doesn't have a ton of, there's not a ton of people in the public thinking about it and urging for troops to come home early
0: on. I'm trying not to get too bogged down in the Korean War because we're trying yeah. to hit a big window here. But another question I was interested in your thoughts on, China gets away, is what I'll say, with calling this a volunteer army. It is direct Chinese government support of North Korea fighting American forces. The United States has nuclear weapons. China doesn't. Mm-hmm how how are they so confident that this isn't going to escalate to something more it it seems in retrospect seems like a big big gamble especially when the us started suffering defeats at the hands of the chinese was that just did they think that was just off the table
1: it's i don't think it's that they thought it was off the table it's that i think they knew they had support in the form of the soviet union the soviet union by mid 1950 and especially late 50 and early 51, when the Chinese really get involved, um, they they know that the, that the Soviets have their back and there is the threat of nuclear weapons there. There's also back and forth over the value of using nuclear weapons in China. We, The use of nuclear weapons also at this time is by and large, the, you got to remember when the UN is founded as well, the US founds the uh, nuclear watchdog a- agency that exists today, the um, the the acronym escapes me, but the um, IAEA, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. the um, Yeah. That, <laughs> but uh, my mind's blanking on it, but they established that with the intent of making sure nobody else uses nuclear weapons. And because the U S takes an early lead in, in ensuring that nuclear weapons aren't used while we continue to threaten with them, we're very politically, and militarily aware and hypersensitive to the use of uh, to the actual use of them, and I think that with the Soviets on the other end now, kind of balancing out a the teeter totter, they the Chinese feel safe. There's also a different mentality there in this kind of mass force, this mass support, the the global expansion of communism and the revolution, etc. Um, these are by and large a lot of peasant folks. China, far more than the Soviet Union, is as a lot of these peasant, agrarian, illiterate types who have this idea of communism that they fervently, a, a lot of them fervently believe in, but they're not worried about a nuclear holocaust, and they're also not being taught about these governments. They're, they're not aware of it like the American public is and the American government is and the Soviet government. Is. Because remember, the Soviet government's kind of hands off early on with this whole thing, and they only kind of stay involved with advising and equipage and things like that. But I, I don't want to bog too much down on Korea, like you were saying. I had my, my transition from this is that, in, is that essentially Stalin supports the North. Um, peace negotiations really begin effectively in 51, but they continually break down and continually break down. Yeah, there, peace negotiations are going for almost two whole years before the war actually, they actually signed the armistice. And for all your listeners out there, I'm sure they're aware of this, but just remember the Korean War is technically not over. It was never the a peace agreement was never ratified. An armistice was signed, which marked an end of the fighting, official fighting. Um, but there is never a peace, a formal peace signed. Um, because believe it or not, South Korea is the one who refused to come to the table on that. Um uh, and that's that's a whole other thing. But um and this really gets accelerated in 53 after Stalin dies. Stalin dies in March of 1953, and this kicks off a wave of changes in the Soviet Union that the US is scrambling to try and react to. Because up until this point, the Soviet Union is going to continue to be a a dictatorship for the most part. And through the 60s, it's really going to shift Into kind of a there's always going to be one head, one general secretary of the Soviet of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. That general secretary is the official title of the leader of the Soviet Union, who we think of as de facto the leader. So later on, um, Khrushchev and uh, Gorbachev and Yuri Andropov um, and guys later on in the 80s, they are always the general secretary of this Communist Party of the Soviet Union. They're not like the premier or the president. Um, Stalin is a different case, but up to this point. The revolution the, the the Soviet the Soviet Union is only known two leaders Lenin and Stalin for the most part with some little interim years there during the era of the NEP in the 1920s um, but when he dies there's going to be a short episode. anyone who hasn't seen it highly recommend watching um, the death of Stalin funny funny movie that outlines it, it gives you a kind of dramatized and compacted version of the events of the power struggle and all the guys within the inner circle that were that were the advisors to Stalin reacting to his death also all the actors in there are hilarious it's comedy but it's it's it, it takes this real scenario and kind of gives you a rough idea of the back and forth and the having to create little factions within the Soviet Union within the Communist Party to then make someone the leader and that leader eventually becomes Nikita Khrushchev it's not immediate in 53 um, a lot of people see him as a potential leader, but he really doesn't solidify power until 54, 55, because you have other guys ahead of the NKVD, which would become the um, KGB, uh, Beria, Beria, He's a hard hitter there too. Um, he's later executed under many things, but, um, he, uh, he's executed in kind of mysterious fashion, but, uh, not under the greatest uh, example, but, um, death of Stalin kind of is a good outline of this while well, funny, but it's not also a completely accurate depiction, but it gives you a good idea. I mean, it's entertaining. But after this happens and Stalin dies, the Soviets are going to continue to you know, support their, um, their satellite nations and things like that. But the, it's, there's going to be a thawing in a way that they allow their public to view the government. Um, the, the, there's the de-Stalinization campaign of 1956 that continues into the 60s, where Khrushchev essentially makes this speech um, to a Soviet um, Communist Party Congress um, in 1956. Um, denouncing Stalin and all the things he did and the, all the personality around him, and trying to thaw in a Soviet way the public interpretation of the government and allow some criticism, allow, you know, not just make the gulag this place that everybody gets chucks out and, and on the gulag topic. Almost immediately after 53, from 54 to 56, the vast majority of people that are still being held in gulags, especially German POWs, are released at this time. And there's a whole other subculture of German POWs from World War II being released um, and returning back to, the ones that survived, back to East, uh, not so much East Germany, but West Germany. And the West German response to that is really interesting and radical. But but they released so many people in gulags. Um, because they acknowledge this as part of Stalin's cult of personality and the, and the um, autocracy he had, and everyone has to remember that this this is huge for the Soviet Union. It, we all see it as still authoritarian, but it's mm-hmm. it's very big in terms of it's going from really authoritarian to less authoritarian. And in the history of the Soviet Union and Russia as a whole, this is a, a big step forward. And it's weird because it it, it also results in in the mid 50s and late 50s, this, um, the Soviets and the Americans kind of, while they're continuing to ramp up their their arsenals and talk big, they're also talking to each other. And this is a big factor. And you get um, one big example of this is the, um, the uh, kitchen debates. This was um, an agreed upon, um, basically a public show in Moscow and later the US, uh, or in the Soviet Union and the US where both agree to basically do big displays in each other's countries to show the public in their countries what their countries are capable of, what the average life of those people is like, what their industrial is like, what they can do. Um, The kitchen debate is when the U.S. kind of cockily in this this area builds a massive U.S. house, or what would be considered a a standard single-family home in the U.S., and they fill it to the gills with modern appliances to try and show this off to the Soviet public, who's allowed to go through and see this house. And Vice President Nixon at this time, uh, Richard Nixon, the future president, um, who was the vice president to Eisenhower at this time, is there in 1959. And Nikita Khrushchev, the uh, head of the Soviet, the Soviet Union, comes through and they have an exchange through interpreters over, you know, is this truly what all Americans are capable of having? And Nixon's like, yeah, anyone who, you know, can build the wealth to buy this, you know, which is most people in the US can afford this. And they can have these mixers and these, this television and all these things. And Khrushchev just refuses to believe it. And it becomes this debate back and forth over who can crank out more corn and who can make more wheat and all these things. And Khrushchev famously says, we will bury you. Not in a threatening tone. It's more of, we will bury you in pro- products. Like we can, we can do this. Like you're throwing all this weight around. We can definitely do this. And of course they cannot. So they are not capable <laughs> of this. But it, it starts this debate. And this is a, an evidence of them, them coming together and talking more. Whereas before it was very icy. There was less communication. And this late fifties and early sixties, that turns into the, the very chaotic and at times very close to Armageddon. Um, the Kennedy administration is really what kind of uh, kind of solidifies this game. Things get cold. Um, they they warm up. There's there's still competition and and there it's hard to explain. There's still competition and there's still you know animosity between the two, and we still fear communism and they still fear us and capitalism, in the West, but. It thaws out until Kennedy, and Kennedy early on is going to, while very confident in this this fancy young individual, Khrushchev is going to is going to throw him off early on as inexperienced, too young, and too intelligent in some in some descriptions is how he puts him. Um, because you got to remember, Khrushchev is a, is a son of the revolution. He's a former Red Army, uh, you know, leader in the Red Army in the, in the days of the revolution. He's a peasant son who raises up through the ranks becomes this famous commander of world war ii and now he sees this fancy rich boy um you know who also has a service record but he sees this young guy who is new to kind of throwing his weight around and in a kind of similar sense i've always kind of compared kennedy to obama in the in in a sense that he didn't have a ton of political experience prior to rank for president He had been in Congress, but he wasn't in that long. And his he he was seen as a rising star. But the fact he went to the so quickly was very unexpected. And but Kennedy, Khrushchev sniffs this out early on. And the thing is, is that when you read into Kennedy's thought process and read in the interviews and especially all the recordings around his office that they make, uh, beginning in the early '60s through his administration, especially during the tense, tense days of his daily and hourly meetings with his Security Council during um, the Bay of Pigs and later on through all the foreign policy stuff. There's tons of recordings out there of these periods, and I highly suggest people listen to them because they're fascinating. But you can hear in Kennedy's voice and later on his accounts and other people's accounts of conversations with him. Kennedy is deathly afraid of his own legacy because when you look at the first year of his presidency, in 1961, domestically, he's not doing a ton of stuff. But he's working on civil rights stuff, he's working on economic things and, the, and the, what will become the war on poverty with LBJ. But externally in the foreign sphere, he comes to office in January of 1961. And what happens is, uh, so just before this, Francis Gary Powers is shot down in the UT spy plane over the Soviet Union. This is a big deal. So they now have one of our pilots and someone that they are gonna wanna exchange for ours. So he inherits this issue because Powers is not exchanged until months later. Um, But he's elected and he inherits the what are becoming the plans for the Bay of of Pigs. Um, Eisenhower had freed up the funds for this to become a thing. And there was ongoing planning for raising an army of expat Cubans to invade Cuba with American and mostly CIA at this point or what becomes a CIA um, uh, aid. Game on the island at overthrowing Castro. Because ever since Castro came to power in 58-59, we've always been against the guy. And it's important to note that as we kind of shift into this idea of the Cuban Missile Crisis, yeah. um, he Castro is not firmly in the camp of the Soviet Union yet. He's at this time seeing the kind of split between China and the Soviet Union and knows that he can maybe work with both. But it's it's not the communist world in the Cold War is not a model. It's, it's not fair to the complexities of, of their political systems and their cultures that a lot of these people have to just throw them all in the same column. It's very easy for us in the West to do so because it makes it a lot easier, but it'd be like throwing us in the, same, in the same camp as West Germany and Brazil and you know these dictatorships that happen in South America. While they are in the West, many of them, you know, we don't identify with them. So it's important to remember this going through the whole Cold War if you're studying this period. But Castro isn't fully decided. But the Bay of Pigs, definitely pushes Castro's Mm -hmm. hand into being pro in the Soviet Union yeah, Uh, and working closer with Khrushchev. But so Kennedy's uh, first in office in 61. He inherits this invasion of pigs, uh, the invasion of the Bay of Pigs, which happens in April of 1961. So three months after the guy takes office, fails catastrophically. Figures are immediately pointed at the US. It's very hard for them to die. Um, But right after this, um, in in June, you have meetings between the first uh, in-person meetings between uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy, which I believe were in Vienna, I think. Um, And basically it comes down to the two of them staring each other down at this meeting in person and Kennedy blinks. And Khrushchev bases a lot of decisions after the fact on the fact that after his face-to-face interaction with Kennedy and talking with him, he goes, oh, he's so inexperienced, he's not going to stop a damn thing. We can do,
0: we can get away with a lot of stuff before he's going to make a move. And so this- What what happened there? Do you know? Like what was the- interaction yeah. where he was like, oh, I got this guy.
1: It was basically some back and forth over over uh, nuclear weapons and missile uh, placements and um, developments in Berlin, access to Berlin. It was a lot of debate over the acknowledgement of um, the East German state as a, as a sovereign government. There, That's going to be a huge talking point between the two and a huge point of contention all through the, the, the wall going up and everything, too. Um, but the long and short of it is he basically, he he can tell right away, or Kennedy is, is very nervous. And he's also very nervous about his legacy because so much has gone wrong for him at this point. And it continues to go wrong um, because after June, you start to see moves from, from the East and basically a green light from Khrushchev. Like, hey, if you guys got to start stopping this brain drain somehow, go ahead. And this happens but a couple months later, but that's when why Khrushchev feels comfortable to give the East Germans the okay. And it's, it's still debated over whether who made the final decision on putting up the wall in Berlin. But um, Khrushchev basically okays it without saying directly put up a friggin' wall. Sure. Um, but the Germans put up a friggin' wall. Um, and he does this because he knows Kennedy's weak and he doesn't think he's going to do anything about it. Or at least he doesn't think he, he has the experience to deal with it. And what's ironic about the wall going up in August of 1961 is that... Um, they're going to continue to not acknowledge the uh, East German government. They're going to continue to basically um, claim it as a puppet state, which it is. Um, but they're going to continue to claim it as a puppet state of the Soviet Union and claim it's not a sovereign nation. But as early as 1955, uh, the Soviets actually gave the East German government and its police and its its security forces the ability to police their own people. So unlike the other occupied zones of Germany, in the mid by the mid 1950s. Um, the East German government is now allowed to control its own people in East Berlin, which in those sectors, the Soviets are supposed to be in control. Same thing with the Americans and British and French in their sectors of West Berlin. So this is already kind of flaunting face. And the whole point was it was this constant pressure from Khrushchev on the West to make them acknowledge that East Germany is everything that an independent government is, except in name, because they just won't acknowledge it. Of course, the Soviet Union acknowledges it as a as a, a, its own state. Sure. Um, but it's, it's all part of this acknowledgement part. But they push that. And despite the wall going up in 61, Kennedy actually sees the wall as kind of his savior. It's not great, but there are a lot of people in his administration who look at it and go, huh, well, shoot, the Soviets have to put up their own wall. That's a, that's, there's one guy who actually calls it a monument to the failures of communism. It is a public a totally public display of the failure of their state and their ability to keep their people there because they don't want to be there. And, it, and they play Take, it, yeah. They play it brilliantly, honestly. And it's it's and they play this off as really the best result. Because the other thing Kennedy saw was that up until this point, he figured if they were not going to bother building a wall, that always left the question on the table of the Soviets invading and occupying West Berlin. Um, this is another thing that's going to play into um, the tensions and the the thought process of Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis, because. They they're wary at any given time that the Soviets are going to just charge in from their eastern sector, take over the West and take all of Berlin for themselves in their sector. And when the wall goes up, Kennedy goes, well, they're bothering to put all this money into a wall and build a, a structure. They're obviously not thinking of tearing it down anytime soon. So it looks to him as though he may have avoided disaster and also given the U.S. a PR win in the process. So it's it's interesting to view because Kennedy, Kennedy has to take any win he can get this point in 61 because things are very tense and they continue to build in 62 in January of 62 you have the beginning of the uh U.S. embargo on Cuba which still stands in many ways today um and that begins in January of 62 this spurred on by talks between um Castro and Khrushchev begins what will come to a head in October of 62 as the Cuban Missile Crisis or the October Crisis because the Cuban Missile Crisis happens around Cuba but it has far-reaching, far-reaching sure. issues out into Europe, because Europe is always the crown. Jewel. Europe is always a thing, and especially West Berlin is something that Khrushchev always has on his plate, and that conflict there is, of course, always the more immediate threat to them. Cuba is so far and away that he doesn't have to think much about it. And there are a lot of factors going to Q- uh, Khrushchev's decision making in '62 for the Cuban Missile Crisis. You've got he wants to bolster Cuba in his regime. Um, and he wants to give them an ability or more support in a way that also deters u s uh, the a possible u s invasion because there are still talks at this time, especially after the missiles start to become uh, they they start to become discovered by the u s and the CIA uh, from uh photo aircraft in sixty two they they realize that these missiles are going to be there, and they also still have a contingency this whole time until until the uh, Everything kind of ebbs and goes, and the tensions die down. They have an entire contingency to invade Cuba directly on ground with U.S. troops. We're not talking bay of pigs. We're talking U.S. troops on the ground in Cuba. Which wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't be crazy. It's right
0: there. It's, it's, it's right it's there. It's far
1: away. And it's we understandable
0: that they're concerned about that.
1: Yeah, And we had troops during the heightened days of October in troop transports ready to go. And we, at the same time, are bolstering, or raising guard and reserve troops, getting them getting them all their kit, and sending them over into Berlin. And at the same time, while this is happening, they actually, to reinstate, because the Americans at this time are also afraid to put the the Soviets are going to try and cut off access to Berlin again, a la 1948. And so in a show of force, the U.S. exerts its dominance, and it's it's quadripartite agreement ability to enter the East German sector by the one road they're allowed and go into West Berlin through East Germany. They almost round the clock. Every few weeks, they send a contingent of troops down the same highway, full kit, some marching on foot, some in, in troop carriers, some in Jeeps, down this main highway. And they're watched by the East Germans and Soviets the whole way. But they march imposing rifles, kit and all down the highway into West Berlin and all the way back, and they keep doing that because they they want to ensure that their access doesn't get cut off, and we have another Berlin blockade. And this is all happening in 1962. And so you have Khrushchev making these decisions to try and defend Cuba from a U.S. invasion, which is very much on the table at this point. Sure. Um, but the U.S. does take action on one of its multiple actions. So it has multiple actions at this point. And when you listen to a lot of the recordings of, of Kennedy. With his his guys. Kenny's very much not a hawk. He's deadly afraid of sparking a nuclear war. Then you have guys like Curtis LeMay later on and uh, and other uh, advisors that are World War II generals in his cabinet. They're very much hawks and are like, we just need a bomb. We just need a strategic bomb right now, take out all the nukes, and we'll just do a preemptive strike. For their part, the Soviets are also thinking of a preemptive strike in some places, or, or rather, Castro is asking for a preemptive strike in some cases. But both sides do not want to risk that because the military personnel and the advisors, political level, while they have a lot of sway, at the end of the day, people making the decisions are Kennedy and Khrushchev. And they are both very aware of how everyone is on just a a, a trigger pin, a, a hairpin of this. They are so close to nuclear Armageddon, and they know that they don't know at the time that there were even nukes swimming around in the ocean. One really famous incident is, is of course, when the U.S. starts to blockade Cuba and try and search every single cargo vessel that's going through the blockade to Cuba. Mm -hmm. You have um, an entire fleet of U.S. ships up there. Below that, you have Soviet submarines, one of which, I think it's B-58, I think is the submarine's name. But B-58 is a uh, submarine with nuclear-tipped torpedoes, nuclear torpedoes. And it's down there. And it... Because they're being they they were given written explicit warning that, that if they are damaged by a depth charge or attacked directly in any way that they should react with a nuclear tipped torpedo. To launch said torpedo requires three of the commanding officers, all three of the commanding officers consent, and then you know turn the key in and launch. It. Two of the three are for one is not, and that guy is often credited with. The, with basically saving the world from nuclear on again because they were so deep at one point trying to avoid um to be beyond depth charge um uh, range they lose radio communication with the surface and some u.s ships that discover them drop basically were practice depth charges they're smaller they, they they're loud enough you can detect them but they're mm-hmm. not going to do any damage um but they are being hit with these practice depth charges they don't know what's going on in the surface and many of them assume that a nuclear war has already begun and and so they don't know what's going on in the surface and their two options are launch a torpedo and join in the fray or come to the surface because they're also running out of oxygen very quickly at this depth so essentially they don't fire the nuclear torpedo they surface and later on are, are let through but they don't find out until gosh i think 2002 at a conference of surviving veterans of this later on they they don't find out that until then this guy didn't you know was the one officer that refused and it but that's how close everything comes because that one little thing is what tips it all off it just goes and there were also multiple back and forths over what the cubans were going to do in response and castro asking for a nuclear response on his behalf but at the end of the day um there's a secret conversation um between kennedy Khrushchev uh, Khrushchev uh, resolves to remove all the nuclear weapons from Cuba in exchange for the, remove, the removal of ballistic missiles in Turkey that target the Soviet Union as well as potentially some nuclear missile sites that are stationed in Italy. Um, you don't hear about them as often but there are U.S. nuclear um, uh, ICBMs at this time in Italy and also Turkey. But Turkey were the main ones that were also much closer in, uh, in range of all the Soviet Union and Italy was too. But um, they agreed to this and everyone kind of calms down but it's it's because of this you get a you there's a slow detente but still a lot of pressure in Europe it's it's I don't know how to put it it's like a gentlemanly duel almost I I don't want to paint it in like uh, antiquated terms but it's it's this idea that you know they're they know their ideologies clash they know at this point especially in your early 60s the Soviet Union doesn't realize the missile gap is as big as it is, and, and the U.S. doesn't either. But the U.S. thinks is definitely afraid of the Soviets catching up to them. And there are a lot of um, sources since that have come to say that actually the Americans knew we had this huge, this huge gap in m- nuclear weapons that we did. Because throughout the Cold War, at no point did we have less than, I think, five times the, the nuclear yield that the Soviet Union did. Um, even in the '80s, when they really try to ramp up their ICBM production and stuff like that, but we always outmatch them. And as a result, it's um, that's going to play into future nuclear diplomacy. Uh, but it's it's a very tense time. It has repercussions to Europe, and it's going to continue um, all you know all through the '90s and
0: ebbs and flows. But this is definitely the most tense, I would say, for sure. So we just went from. The Soviet Union tests their first atomic weapon, nuclear weapon, <laughs> and all the way through to one key turn away from nuclear Armageddon. And not only that, in just after this conflict in
1: 1963, you had the detonation of Tsar Bomba. Tsar Bomba is the largest nuclear yield, um, nuclear yield, weapon ever tested, ever. Still, it was, to this day, it was the Soviets. Um, nuclear test. It was up in the far Arctic North, but it had ramifications 300 miles out of shattering the world. This thing was, I think, the, the highest yield U.S. weapon was around 14 or 15 kilotons. The Soviet one's Bomba, was estimated at 58. It was ungodly large. And actually, after this, even the Soviets in the, and back up and go, whoa, man, <laughs> let's dial it back. And it's in 63, early 63 that you see um, the first steps towards nuclear nonproliferation. It's, um, they start in 63 to uh, uh, they start on the first agreement to limit um, above surface nuclear testing and um, it's, they limit just underground and later on this gets limited even further uh, but uh, it's the beginning of this acknowledgement that now mutually assured destruction with the tension of the Cuban Missile Crisis brings everyone to reality and goes this is the numbers we have are unnecessary to this day that still kind of lasts because even now we still have so many nuclear weapons that, you know we could do
0: anything we need it to tactically um, but it's crazy man i um so yeah from the first test to wow so what is that 14 years from the first test to the largest the world's ever seen yep that's crazy <laughs> 14 years in the history of mankind think about that it didn't exist and I mean, I guess there always could be bigger and bigger tests, but um, you put it in an interesting way of kind of recognizing maybe we've got too much here. This could be this could be the end, right? And, um, and
1: really after that point, they realize that yields are so high. They're unnecessarily high. The, the yield of a nuclear weapon, the, the technology that's going to continue to change and dictate policy and our fighting is really going to be the delivery system. That's the technology that everyone's fighting over. The Soviets, Part of why the, nu- the nuclear weapons go to Cuba in the first place in 62 is because the Soviets don't have a ton of intercontinental ballistic missiles. We have just started to develop and use intercontinental range ballistic missiles. The Soviets still have a, a large portion of medium range, and Cuba is in the medium range. And so as a result, if they're going to put nukes anywhere that threaten the United States directly, Cuba is a good option, and it shores up an ally and does a couple other political things. But the reason for that was also because of that gap in technology. And the Soviets realized after that as well, that they need to, that really the, the problem, the gap could be closed by better technology, better delivery systems. Um, and the US, the US already has that in some cases, but is always developing better ones like the Nike
0: and the Minuteman, stuff like that. Well, this is probably a good spot to wrap it up for now. That was a lot, a lot. And I think I said it before, but if not, I'll say it again. Um, your depth of knowledge on this is incredible. It's, it's, I know I said this, I don't know how much I didn't know until you start talking about some of this. And then I hear things and just, it, it, it paints a whole new context. So that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for, for walking through this. Um, I think we're, we're right up on the edge of the Vietnam war. Oh, absolutely. Is that the direction to go next.
1: Absolutely. You want to do
0: yeah. Yeah, we can let's, let's plan on uh so let's plan on another one here. We'll uh we'll talk offline, but I think up next, at least a little bit, Vietnam War. Ian, thanks for jumping on, man. Anytime looking forward to the next one, man. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories.